Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. I'm Phil Ford. I'm sitting outside in my backyard recording this introduction because my wife is teaching cello inside the house, and I figured you wouldn't mind the sound of birds chirping in the background. Anyway, from the very beginning, J.F. and I have been mentioning the tarot en route to discussing other things. This week, we finally start talking about the tarot itself. Now, that's such a vast topic, it seems absurd to tackle it all at once— So this episode is about only the first card of the tarot, the Fool. Though actually, it's not exactly the first card. In the earliest version, still widely used, the Fool is unnumbered, a fact whose significance we spend a lot of time unpacking in the conversation that follows. We also talk about holy fools, fools in love, fools in literature, and what a fool believes, the yacht rock hit by the Doobie Brothers. But behind it all is the enigmatic figure we see in the tarot, striding off on his unknown adventure with a bindle on his shoulder, dressed in motley and with an animal nipping at his heels. Exactly what kind of animal it is varies according to which deck we're talking about. There are thousands of variants. Variants of what, you may well ask. What is the tarot, anyway? It's a deck of cards that emerged from obscure origins in the European Middle Ages, The earliest decks date from the 15th century, though some version of the cards were doubtless in use earlier. How much earlier, no one has yet been able to say. The cards were, and are, used for games, just like the modern 52-card deck, which developed out of the tarot. Like modern playing cards, the tarot has four suits, discs, staves, cups, and swords, numbered from ace to ten, along with court cards, kings, queens, etc., There are differences I'm glossing over here, but the main difference between modern playing cards and the tarot is the set of 22 cards called the trumps, or, if we're being occult here, the major arcana. Arcana means mysteries, and that is exactly what these cards are. They have names like the hanged man, the tower, justice, the wheel of fortune, the empress, and the devil. They include strange pictures of dogs baying at the moon, of death harvesting a field of corpses, of an angel calling the dead to judgment, of lovers enacting some ambiguous scene of rivalry. It's not surprising that whoever contrived the modern playing card deck got rid of them. They are radioactive with dreams, and you don't need fevered surrealism to play old maid. Skeptics like to point out that there's no evidence people used the tarot for divination until the 18th century— But to me, it is inconceivable that such images were only ever used to pass the time in idle amusements. To look at those cards is to peer into fathomless depths. Colin Wilson wrote about the tarot in his book The Occult, which we discussed in episode 63, and Wilson spends a fair bit of time considering various explanations of The Hanged Man, which shows a fellow with an oddly serene expression hanging upside down by one foot. After turning over one speculative theory after another and coming to no definite conclusions, Wilson writes, quote, I dwell upon this problem because such speculation is the best possible introduction to the tarot pack. It so obviously means something. Whoever created it, or constructed it, meant something quite definite by its symbols. And perhaps one day a historian may discover that some early tribe of gypsies originated in a country where the local duke punished malefactors by hanging them upside down by one foot. But at the moment, the mystery remains impenetrable, and one can only stare in bafflement at the cards and try to let the intuition work upon them. Excellent advice, which J.F. and I try to follow in this episode. We mention lots of books and whatnot as we follow the fool on his mysterious errand, as is our want, but at the end the fool remains the fool, still walking, still mysterious. There is no explaining these cards, much less explaining them away. You can only play with them. 
I hope you enjoy our game. I should mention our Patreon, but I find that I've been going on for rather a while, and perhaps you're impatient to hear the conversation I've been setting up for the past few minutes. Fair enough. You know what Patreon is, and all you really need to know is that you can support Weird Studies by going to patreon.com forward slash weird studies and signing up to one of our free tiers. You'll find scads of writing and bonus audio that our listeners are kind enough to say they enjoy. You don't have to join up, but it'd be cool if you did. Okay, on with the show. So I have a gambit, an opening gambit, the fool's gambit. I'm going to tell you about a dream that I had. Okay. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, right around the time that I suggested that we do a show on this topic, the fool, the unnumbered card of the major arcana of the tarot. And uh, I had a dream that uh, it was kind of weird because I was... The point of view character, like the person whose eyes I was looking out of in this dream, was a kind of magician, like a stage magician, but the acme of a stage magician, like somebody whose legerdemain is so perfect and so accomplished that it is indistinguishable from real occult magic. And in my dream, I'm that guy and I'm the just the slickest motherfucker, you know, like I have this power and this confident ease that I know that I can do anything or say anything that I need to and the particular moment in order to make happen what I want to have happen. And what's weird is that that's not who I actually am. Who I actually am, Phil Ford, or the stand-in nightside version of Phil Ford, is actually the person I'm talking to. Okay. And that guy is sort of a jackass. Like, I don't remember the first part of the dream, but that guy, meaning me, has done something presumptuous and stupid. And the magician, like I said, I'm, it's as if I'm playing a video game and I'm playing that character. Like, he's the yeah. point of view character. The one thing I remember from this dream is that me, the magician, telling off the version of me that just fucked something up, saying... With emphasis on every word, don't put words in my mouth. And when I say mouth, I reach out and pull out of this guy's mouth a playing card. And from my subjective point of view as a magician, like I'm doing something that is like a traditional bit of stage magic where you like pull a ping pong ball out of someone's ear because you've, you have it up your sleeve or something. Except, you know, I'm the point of view character. And from my point of view, I just manifested that card. Right. So it's sort of stage magic, sort of impossible magic, right? And I turn the card over and it's the Joker. Hmm which is, of course, the playing card equivalent of the Fool, an unnumbered card that stands outside of the numerical order and the otherwise organized structure of the card deck. And that's the dream. And Mm. so I wanted to throw that to you. Interpret that dream for me. Well, you were the magician. So you were the first card. You were playing the part of the first card. Card number one of the tarot. Arcanum One, the magician, or in the Marseille deck, Le Battleur, which means like a fairground conjurer. Yeah, the Battleur is the magician, Le Ma is the fool. And uh, Crowley makes an interesting connection between the two by saying that the fool is the prepubescent male figure. And then, of course, he becomes, this is just one of the many permutations but he becomes the magician when he hits puberty. And of course, that's what the stick represents, right? There's a phallic symbol or phallus. And so you were the alpha magician telling the fool. And this is, I interpret the, the, the trick. Were you surprised by the Joker? Were you surprised to pull that card out? 
it was just sort of like, this is fucking awesome. Like, right. <laughs> it was like a feeling of delight at being able to do this. Were you showing him the fool or were you looking at the fool? Was it, was I the- was looking at it, but also showing him and some shadowy observers. Right. Not quite real, but they were present. Did you see the face of the card before you showed it to him in the audience? Put it this way. I, I think what you're trying to ask is, did I intend to pull out the Joker? Was that something yes. that I did intentionally? And no, it was a total surprise and yet had the feeling of absolute rightness. Right. Got it. Which, as I've argued in the Diviner's Time piece, is almost the cognitive signature of magic. That blend of like totally surprising and absolutely fated. Hmm. It's interesting because I can't help but interpret the other you, the you that was basically the uh, the volunteer that you pulled out of the crowd to bring onto the stage and do this trick. I can't help but see him as the fool in this story. Yeah. So I'm picturing the magician telling the fool, don't put words in my mouth. And that's where I'm having trouble digging any further. I think we should circle back to it. I think that by the end of this conversation, yeah. your dream will make perfect sense. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So that's how I'll answer the gambit. Excellent. <laughs> um, I wanted to start with a quote from uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which you may have seen when you were reading the full chapter in Meditations on the Tarot, A Journey into Christian Hermeticism, which is a a masterpiece of Christian Hermeticism. It's such a crazy book. But anyways, he, um, he has an epigraph at the beginning of his Fool chapter, and he places the Fool, interestingly, between the 20th and 22nd card. So he turns it into card number 21, even though it's unnumbered, he puts it between judgment and the world. But his reasons for doing that are very interesting. And he maintains that the Fool is necessarily unnumbered, uh, a kind of zero, but a zero that's not just a zero, of course. But anyways, he, he has an epigraph at the beginning, a quote from uh, St. Paul. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly before God. It's easy for us, for we modern people to think, yep, everyone reading St. Paul's letter back then was pretty foolish in terms of their understanding of, you know, cosmology and biology and politics. But you have to imagine this line hovering above all of history so that it's equally valid today. So that St. Paul, if he lived today, would say to us, if you think you are wise in this age, you must become a fool so you can become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly before God. In other words, in gaining true wisdom, according to St. Paul, one necessarily will appear as a fool to the people of the world. That there is a connection between madness and wisdom because true wisdom always manifests in any historical epoch without exception, always manifests as madness. That to me speaks to the meaning of this card and the reason why it's unnumbered. It doesn't have a place in the series because the fool almost kind of hovers above the entire series. And in fact, some people have interpreted the fool in the tarot as the protagonist that undergoes the journey from one arcanum to the other and culminating finally in the world. So that the fool is kind of the character who's going to go on this tarot journey. Yes. The self to whom all the events of the ensuing cards happens. Correct. And so like... You could almost imagine telling a story like, you know, the fool goes a wandering and the first person he meets is a magician. Right. And the magician says, don't put words in my mouth for some reason we have yet to ascertain. Uh, And then moves on to the second, the high priestess and, you know, so on and so forth. And each time presumably learns something. And then finally, the world is the completion of the journey. And the journey from the fool to the world, if you're thinking of zero as happening before everything and the world is happening at the end of this process, then you see the transformation 
of the one card into the other as a kind of image of enlightenment or spiritual progress, mm -hmm. uh, spiritual awakening. And that is one of the fundamental meanings that is attached to this card. Right. That it's a card simultaneously of foolishness, of true foolishness, that you can associate this card with things that in commonplace existence we think of as foolish. But you can also think of this as a card of the highest initiatory wisdom. Right. Um, in his book, Meditations on the Tarot, the anonymous author of the book, because he remains anonymous to the end. It's one of those strange texts, eh? Meditations on the it Tarot. Is. It is such a rich, crazy text. You wonder who... I mean, I just picked it up for the first time in preparation for this episode, and it completely blew me away how rich it is, how profound it is. Yeah, the, the, the breadth of knowledge and wisdom involved is astounding, to say the least. But uh, in his chapter on the Fool, he spends most of the chapter, at least the second half of the chapter, explaining how the fool is both, uh, well, I'll, I can actually read the bit. It's very short. He says, the arcanum, the fool has a double meaning. Indeed, it can be understood in two different ways, as a model and as a warning at the same time. So you were just saying that the fool appears as both the absolute beginner, the actual foolish character who doesn't know his ass from his elbow. And also uh, the figure of the final state of, of awakening or of full wisdom. He goes on, for on the one hand, the card teaches the freedom of transcendental consciousness elevated above the things of this world. And on the other hand, it clearly presents a very impressive warning of the peril that this elevation comprises. Lack of concern, inadequacy, irresponsibility, and ridicule in, in a word, madness. Again, the word madness. And um, Crowley, in his writings on the fool, uh, he insists on this, this thing about madness, that the savior always appears first and foremost as a madman or as a mad person. But then he always qualifies it divine madness. And of course, that's, a, oh, I guess, an oblique reference to Plato's dialogue, the Phaedrus, in which... Socrates distinguishes normal insanity, let's say, from divine madness, which is the madness of the gods, a kind of foolish wisdom or a wise madness. And of course, the, the fool represents that dialectic and can function in a tarot draw either as an indication, a warning about how foolish you're being or as a kind of exhortation or like an invitation to engage in some process in order to gain true wisdom. And the, the same card might mean both or one or the other. And the fact that it's unnumbered is also interesting because like we tend to put the fool at the beginning because it's the zero card, right? But of course- And we're accustomed to putting the zero at the beginning of a sequence. Even zero, though- Zero, one, two, yeah. three, four, et cetera. And yet a zero does not belong before one. It doesn't belong anywhere among numbers. You, we could easily have- developed a convention where we would count one, two, three, four, five, zero, six, seven, eight, nine. We could, we could have put the zero yeah. anywhere. It's arbitrary that we put it at the beginning. It just makes sense because we kind of remove it from the sequence altogether by putting it at the beginning. On a phone, it's at the end, on a traditional telephone. And the fool is, has that character of it's kind of an absolute, indissoluble, irreconcilable ambiguity and uh, paradox that yeah. that animates and gives life to the kind of the whole tarot sequence. The zero seems to imply, or one thing it seems to imply, is that the fool is in some ways, perhaps he's the person or the self to whom all of the states and conditions represented in all of the ensuing arcana, um, to whom they, those things happen. But then at the same time, you could also say, yeah, but he's a fundamentally different order of being from those things. He stands, he's also stands entirely apart from them, not only apart from those things, but apart from everything that the fool is a kind of like a cosmic singularity. Yeah. Um, That's where we ended up in the Sun Ra episode where we talked about the Joker as the card that transcends the deck, right? It's, it is in yeah. a sense, the figure of transcendence. 
there are ways in which you could argue the magician represents transcendence or the world represents transcendence, judgment perhaps, but there's something about the fool where it's like I was saying, he kind of just hovers over the whole series or underneath it, which makes him fundamentally different. Now, it's interesting as there are arguments like the argument that the anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot, the argument he makes is, I mean, I think this is a sort of a weak argument, but I've heard it before, that if you take the fool out of the numbered series of major arcana, then you only have 21 arcana. And it is a long established convention in Hermeticism for there to be 22 cards, such that you can associate each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, apparently. Um, you can associate a letter to each card, and you can also associate a card for each of the 22 pathways on the Tree of Life, the Kabbalist's Tree of Life. Right. And while I kind of love that aspect of the Hermetic Tarot, where the Tarot becomes almost like a kind of calculator of correspondences between different esoteric systems and thereby becomes very powerful as a means of generating divinatory insight. At the same time, it also sounds a little bit like you're trying to make the fool fit into an ordered schema that you have your own reasons for perpetuating. Mm -hmm. But the fool is precisely that which does not fall into any ordered schema, which is a point, in fact, that the anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot makes, that he's like Till Eugenspiegel, a uh, figure of Dutch folklore, a trickster figure who sets about upending all forms of structure, a kind of carnivalesque figure, a figure of overturning of established orders. And then from that point of view, the zero of the fool or the, uh, the unnumbered, you've got to realize, actually, before I even say that the fool has a zero, in the Marseille deck, he doesn't have a number at all. There's a band at the top where the number should go, but there isn't a number. And that's different from like, for example, Crowley's deck or the Rider Waite deck, which actually give a zero. Right. It's, that and that's a key distinction because the, the oldest tarot decks we have don't use Arabic numerals at all. They use Roman numerals in which zero doesn't exist. So that's a really important point. But I mean, Crowley also made the argument that the 22 major arcana of the tarot correspond to the 22 paths of the tree of life. He just associates the fool card, not with shin, which is the letter that the author of Meditations on the Tarot chooses for the fool, but with aleph, the first letter. Um, right. And he says that as a symbol of aleph, the fool is, um, its number is zero, he says. It represents, therefore, the negative above the tree of life, the source of all things. It is the Kabbalistic zero. It is the equation of the universe, the initial and final balance of the opposites. Air in this card, therefore, quintessentially means a vacuum. Now, here in Crowley's system, that's where I start to get uncomfortable because the fool seems really integral to the structure. Whereas the yeah. almost arbitrary reasons for which the author of Meditations on the Tarot chooses Shin, which is the letter of love to represent the fool, right. I think speaks to his mercurial nature better. I'm not saying that one's right and one's wrong. I'm just saying that yeah. the, it's almost like you could choose any place in the deck for it or none at all. And it doesn't make a difference. You're always making the same. You're, uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe unless you insist that it's the zero card. Maybe that's the only case where I would say, well... But zero is not a number. So what does it mean to be the zero card? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think, also a particular reason why Crowley likes the idea of this card being zero. And it's not just that then you have 22 arcana that you can then map onto the 22 pathways and 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, it's also because one of his fundamental formulas in some ways the most profound is the formula zero equals two. And this is a very difficult doctrine to put into words. He tried repeatedly. And in Magic Without Tears, which was originally a series of letters to students where he is explaining his magical theorems in the most concrete and down-to-earth possible way, uh, he's still trying. And he's still sort of like 
can't quite do it. You know, he he's still trying and still to some extent not succeeding because it's something that just can't quite be noodled out. But suffice it to say, for Crowley, a fundamental mystery of existence that the fool personifies is how do you get something from nothing? How do you jump from zero to one? And this is actually something we were talking about in the 2001 episode. We were talking about what it is that the monolith gives the apes, what kind of evolution we're talking about. Um, You know, what that monolith allows the ape to do is to imagine a world where tapirs fall because they've been struck with a weapon. So he's imagining something that isn't there. And before he encountered the monolith, he couldn't imagine what wasn't right there in front of him. And so we were talking about how like the difference between the one condition and the other is like the difference between zero and one. A million, an infinity times zero is still zero. So how do you get from zero to one? Or to any number for that matter. Because you could go, how do you get from zero to three billion? It doesn't make a difference. The difference between zero and three billion is the same difference as between zero and one, right? Right. You're going from nothing to something. And so this is bringing back a motif of jumps of level, of impossible leaps across voids, which occupied us for much of the Bergson episode last time, where we were talking about Bergson's idea of intuition as more than simply the sum of all the possible snapshots or perspectives or views upon an object, that to move from analysis, which is the accumulation of views and perspectives and symbols that approximate a real thing, you can multiply those perspectives almost infinitely and still not arrive at the thing itself. What is required of the metaphysician is a jump across, like a short hop across an infinitely wide void between all of those approximations and the thing itself between zero and one. Right. And for Crowley, the figure of the fool is a figure of that impossible movement across the void. Right. And in the writer weight deck, the fool is um, helpfully portrayed as walking towards a precipice. And the idea is that the fool will just keep walking over the, will not fall, right? right? Of course, that's if the fool is properly calibrated as the good fool, not the fool that ends up falling down the cliff because he wasn't looking where he was going. It, again, in, on that, in that Rider Wake card, there is the intimation of leaping, of a-causal jumps, of quantum leaps. And just to reemphasize again, that scene from 2001, you have uh, a hominid who is imagining a world in which weapons exist. This is a world that does not exist for it at all. So there is a plain causal sequence that will lead to the world that the hominid is currently in and to the world where they have weapons. They will choose bones, they will train each other, practice or whatever, and then use the bones. And then, of course, then there'll be nothing miraculous about it. The miracle happens in the hominid's ability to, without even having to think through the causal sequence that will lead to the weapon, just to imagine the result. And then, of course, the causal sequence required to get there will reveal itself. It's the leap from an is to an ought that's so strange. And the fool, I agree, I think in Crowley, it's very clear that the fool is a representative of this almost, he's almost a kind of a stranger figure that comes from outside with the new, capital N-U, and makes something new possible. He compares the fool to the early kings of like ancient, ancient kingdoms where patrilineal kingship wasn't around yet. Kings had to become kings by conquest. The royal blood was passed through the daughter and the king had to fight his way and be elected as king. I mean, some of the early uh, Norse kingdoms functioned this way and others as well. So the king was always a stranger from the outside, someone who didn't know the ways of this place. He had to come in. He had to break in. And so Crowley describes this king as the fool. And of course, in many Arthurian legends and stuff, you have the fool that becomes the king, the outsider that becomes the ultimate insider that sits atop the pyramid. You have um, Arthur that no one thought would become king. He's the one to pull Excalibur out. Or you'll have Parsifal who starts off a total fool and ends up at the end. The redeemer of 
the community. This well, I'm, I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm talking about Richard Wagner's. Yeah, there are um, many versions opera Parsifal, of Percival Parsifal, but, but yes. But regardless of the version, he's always a sort of salvific figure. Salvific figure that first appears as a fool. In some legends, I think he was raised in the woods, right? Uh, yes. Because his mother didn't want him to be a knight. So there's a cool passage here in Crowley's Book of Thoth. He, in his Book of Thoth, where he describes the symbol of the, the great fool. He says... The world is always looking for a savior, and the doctrine in question, the doctrine of the great fool, is philosophically more than a doctrine. It is a plain fact. Salvation, whatever salvation may mean, is not to be obtained on any reasonable terms. Reason is an impasse. Reason is damnation. Only madness, divine madness, offers an issue. The law of the Lord Chancellor will not serve. The lawgiver may be an epileptic camel driver like Muhammad, a megalomaniac provincial upstart like Napoleon, or even in exile, three parts learned, one part crazy, an attic dweller in Soho like Karl Marx. There's only one thing in common among such persons. They are all mad, that is, inspired. Nearly all primitive people possess this tradition, at least in a diluted form. They respect the wandering lunatic, for it may be that he is the messenger of the Most High. Quote, this queer stranger, let us entreat him kindly. It may be that we entertain an angel unawares. This idea mm. of the man in motley, the guy who dresses with all the colors, yeah. who doesn't wear the livery of this or that station. It's just, he doesn't fit anywhere in the social order. Coming in from the outside is always the one who will bring the new, who will bring the bone. <laughs> <laughs> Zero equals two formula is kind of a way of, in quasi-mathematical terms, creating an image or a, like a, an idea of manifestation. Two being a kind of figure for what the Buddhists call the 10,000 things, all the things of the dusty world. Manifestation, stuff, the distinctions that we make between different things in our ordinary consciousness and our ordinary practical life. And there is a common idea in especially kind of more new age tinged mysticism, although it extends back a long ways, well before anything we call the new age, where you think of two as something that emerges from one, that there's a kind of a wholeness, oneness, the all is one, you know, the, the, for example, the absolutist monism of someone like Hegel mm -hmm. is an idea of a, uh, a unity from which all multiplicity is apparently derived or perhaps fictively derived. But the point that Crowley wants to make, and in this respect, I, I quite agree with him, is that you can't stop at one. There's also zero. And zero is an important number. This is where it gets a little bit tricky to put into words. Actually, there's a passage from one of Lionel Snell's books written under the name Ramsey Dukes, which I'm going to just try and find. I'm going to pull it off my shelf. This is in a book called Words Made Flesh, which is a very early uh, thinking through of what's come to be known as si the simulation theory. Very interesting book, unjustly neglected. 
I sometimes wonder if the people who are famous for having supposedly invented the simulation theory might have found a dog-eared copy in a Soho-used bookstore and quietly lifted some of his ideas. Or maybe it's just a case of convergent evolution. Who knows? Gnostics did it first, didn't they? Oh, did they? Well, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. He says, I begin with a philosophical exploration. I'm not going to try and explain the larger context for this. I begin with a philosophical exploration. The idea of simple elements having potential for creating complexity, you know, uh, manifestation unfolding from some uh, more unified and simple substrate. An undifferentiated space is a sort of zero in its own terms. It is tempting to argue that it is not a zero, but rather a unity, for it is surely one space. But we can, in fact, only recognize that oneness by stepping outside or mentally separating ourselves from that nothingness and looking back at it. As soon as the first difference, split, or mark is made within that nothingness, it is defined a unit. However, the existence of that one mark creates a duality, the marked and the unmarked. But this implies a trinity, the marked, the unmarked, and the implied duality between them. But this implies a quaternity, the marked and the unmarked, their duality, and the trinity which includes them, and so on. The apparently harmless act of making a distinction is like cutting a slit in nothingness through which the infinity of integers tumbles into existence. Um, yeah, you read this in our Philip K. Dick episode, do you remember? Yeah, it was a long time yeah, ago. No, yeah. um, I had a vague idea that I've read this before, yes, but I'm fond of quoting it because for one thing, it is a remarkably rational account for something that is almost impossible to put in words that happens in meditation, which is a kind of uh, abiding in nothing, which dissolves the moment you make the first mark, the first distinction, the moment that you can even formulate the thought, aha, emptiness. Yeah. The 10,000 things come back, right? Yes. Right. You cut a slit in nothingness and it all pours out. Right. And this cutting of a slit into nothingness and seeing how manifestation just emerges, um, that is something that phenomenologically happens in contemplation. But I think it also is the key to understanding that zero equals two formula right. of Crowley's. Um, Crowley was aware that there's this impossible thing that happens in the universe where the universe tumbles forth out of a slit cut in nothing. And there's a book that had quite a vogue in the late 60s, early 70s, a mathematical book called Laws of Form by a fellow named Spencer Brown. Um, there's a whole interesting story that goes with that. Alan Watts was much taken with this book and people who have better handling of mathematics and symbolic logic than I do can perhaps understand it better. But what Lionel is doing in that passage is basically laying out the first few pages of Laws of Form, which uses a kind of Boolean algebra to come up with a system for representing things that fundamentally uh, belong to a kind of mystical experience. A lot of acid heads in the 60s like Laws of Form because they like to say that it was the one book that approximated some of the insights had in acid trips. Mm -hmm. hmm. So... Another way of thinking through the zero equals two equation thingy is to think in terms of what we were discussing at the end of our uh, Bergson episode just recently. That was Crowley's insight that concepts negate each other below yes. the abyss. So below mm -hmm. the supernal realm where things are in some way from our perspective, at least, unified or involved mm -hmm. in a grander transcendental unity, down here, concepts negate each other completely. And yeah. I remember I brought up James's idea that every concept was binary, right? Concepts are mm -hmm. necessarily yeah. binary. They're necessarily digital entities because they negate everything that's not them in a particular series. Think of the spectrum right. of color, the colors of the rainbow. Well, purple is purple, but I can't tell you what purple is. I can only tell you that it's not red, not blue, not the right. other colors. And then I end up with, ah, that's purple. So this was a, an insight that was central in Hegel's system. Concepts negate themselves on a deeper level and negate each other. And concepts, if they're binary, concepts belong to a way of thinking that is necessarily and irrevocably dualistic. 
And this is one of the big criticisms of Deleuze that Alain Badiou, this other French philosopher, made, is that Deleuze, in his attempt to come up with a essentially kind of pluralistic slash monistic oneness kind of metaphysics ends up being just as dualistic as everybody else because the virtual and the actual, you know, the, the rhizome yes. and the tree, uh, everything right. comes down to a kind of dualism. And there's just what Crowley is saying, and he says this in several of his texts, is that there is no way out of dualistic thinking if by thinking we mean regular cognitive thinking. Regular cognitive yes. conceptual thinking is necessarily dualistic. But on a deeper level, above, in the abyss, all of those conflicting concepts equal zero, right? Yeah. They equal the zero yeah. that is the null, the void out of which all things emerge. So yeah. that's maybe that's another way of understanding the equation. But that's nice. it might be better expressed yeah, in that. that interpretation as two equals zero, uh, which would yeah. mean the same thing, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we started abstract. I'd like to bring it down to the fool in literature, the fool in society, the fool structurally. I found some really cool ideas about this. Or what the fool actually looks like in the tarot. Yeah. Maybe we should cue to that Doobie Brothers song now. What a fool believes. Okay, so let's think about that foolishness in that concept, because we started off saying that the fool can mean ordinary foolishness of a sort that we recognize in our everyday life, or it can mean this kind of very exalted Parsifalian foolishness that is itself kind of ultimate wisdom, a kind of initiatory knowledge, however you want to characterize it. And before the show, I was playing What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers. I was sharing that over Zoom with JF. It's a great song. And uh, it is a great song. Uh, and what it's about is a guy who has this whole picture in his head about something he thought that he and this girl shared long ago. And he has all these nostalgic stories about like, you know, how they were back in the day. And this is just some shit that he's imagining. And he's talking to this girl and she's just kind of embarrassed for him because he's wrapped up in his fantasies right. it's what a fool believes and so that kind of very everyday foolishness is also what the fool in the tarot means. Right. And I think that if we look at it anthropologically for a second, I think we can see why it's not so mysterious why the fool card, the fool trump in the tarot would represent ordinary foolishness and also divine foolishness at the same time. Because both are, from the perspective of the worldly structural standpoint, foolish. They stray from a path. They stray. They're, they're wayward ways of being. The fool, whether he's the or she is the divine fool or just the regular fool, is straying from the established structures and therefore is right. running a risk. But the risk might be worth it. You know, it's like it depends on what the outcome is. So in, in the trickster figures that we find in mythology, which I, in my mind participate of the same archetype. It's the trickster is slightly different from the fool, but the trickster is basically a fool who is driven by maybe a sort of malevolence. But even then, the trickster is always kind of in a way innocent. You think of Mr. Punch in the Punch and Judy show. He does right. awful things, but somehow he's innocent. He kills the devil at the end and all the children can play. You know, like it's the trickster exists beyond good and evil. Uh, in his book, The Trickster in the Paranormal, George P. Hansen, this is a wicked book. Um, that I found, I found yeah. out about this book watching Hellier. They bring it up in there. He pulls out a few kind of key concepts from the work of the anthropologist uh, Victor Turner and also Turner's predecessor, Arnold Van Gennep, who wrote about what they called liminality, communitas, and anti-structure. So if we think of things in those terms, liminality, liminal is a term that's recurred 
for us a few times. I mean, we've used that term in different contexts. Liminal means on the fringe, on the edge, in the in-between, betwixt and between state, between either two states in time or two places. Um, the crossroads is a classic liminal zone because it's neither here nor there. It's a place between places, right? Um, anti-structure for Victor Turner is a term that signifies those processes within a society that remind us of the arbitrary nature of all social systems. So mm -hmm. you'll have a strict hierarchical society, but you'll have a carnival week where all the rules disappear. And in disappearing, in the fact that the rules can disappear and yet the world continues to exist, everyone has to come to terms with the fact that the rules are ultimately arbitrary. But somehow this carnival is necessary for maintaining the structure. It actually replenishes, yeah. it replenishes structure. By permitting chaos, you replenish Correct. structure. Yeah, which is why I like his term anti-structure instead of chaos. Chaos yes. feels like it's totally outside, but anti-structure just tells us the chaos belongs. It's part of the structure. It's like the fool yes, in the tarot exactly. deck. It's, not, it's outside. It has no number, but it's necessary for the number sequence to happen. Yeah. So, um, and then communitas is what happens when uh, social structures dissolve and you feel a kind of universal identification with humankind. You feel this togetherness. I've experienced this a few times in my life. One was uh, after ayahuasca at the end of the second night, I felt this tremendous sense of, um, of community with the people there, but also with just everybody who would ever live this crazy, like psychedelic oneness feeling. And this happens in times of festival, right? Like I've experienced it in another context, much more banal, like uh, you go to a music festival as a kid or a Grateful Dead show in the nineties where I go and all of a sudden it's like, everything's fine. Everything's right with the world. Everything's as it should be. And I'm part of this big community. There's no word that better describes this type of community that you feel you belong to in those instances than uh, church, right? A kind of church, even though it's not Christian or it's, it's a pagan kind of church. So the communitas is what happens in times where anti-structure dissolves the arbitrary rules that govern life. And for Hansen, the fool or the trickster is a figure that brings anti-structure into the fold, into the mix. So the fool is the representative of an outside that is necessary and part of the inside of a social system. It's kind of hard to mm. explain. So, no, I dig that. Yeah. It actually, actually, you're reminding me of a passage in a book that is much more obscure than it should be, even though it's been continuously in print since the 30s and had quite a vogue in its day. It's a book called The Importance of Living by a Chinese intellectual named Lin Yutang. Right. Don't know if I've mentioned it on this show before. This is a book that Helen, my wife, gave me as a present last year, and um, I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's an easy. It's one of those books that's easy to underestimate because aspects of it seem so dated. Um, it's somebody who is telling us constantly of you know what Chinese people are like in this very essentializing way that many people have pointed out. It seems to be more of a self-portrait of Lin Yutang himself than a portrait of like an entire people, the attempting of which would probably be a fool's errand. But for all that, fool's I think it's errand. actually very... I see what yeah, you did there. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually totally unintentionally. Um, but uh, I love this book. It articulates a wonderfully humane and good-humored vision of philosophy. And maybe one of these days we'll actually like do something with this book. But for now, I want to just talk about like one of the things that is most uh, important about this book, a kind of almost a linchpin of Yutang's way of thinking about things is the figure of the scamp. For him, the figure of the scamp is the figure of humanity at its most exalted it is the highest form to which human beings can aspire. The scamp, the ne'er-do-well, the, like a bum, somebody who is floating through life, sort of like the good soldier Schweik, getting out of scrapes through a kind of tricksterish, dumb wit. Falstaff. Falstaff, yeah. But I would rather read what Yutang has to say about it than, uh, than try to paraphrase it. So here's what he writes. 
To me, spiritually, a child of the East and the West, man's dignity consists in the following facts which distinguish man from animals. First, that he has a playful curiosity and a natural genius for exploring knowledge. Second, that he has dreams and a lofty idealism, often vague or confused or cocky, it is true, but nevertheless worthwhile. Third, and still more important, that he is able to correct his dreams by a sense of humor, and thus restrain his idealism by a more robust and healthy realism. And finally, that he does not react to surroundings mechanically and uniformly as animals do, but possesses the ability and the freedom to determine his own reactions and to change surroundings at his will. This last is the same as saying that human personality is the last thing to be reduced to mechanical laws. Somehow the human mind is forever elusive, uncatchable, and unpredictable, and manages to wriggle out of the mechanistic laws or a materialistic dialectic that crazy psychologists and unmarried economists are trying to impose upon him. <laughs> Man, therefore, is a curious, dreamy, humorous, and wayward creature. In short, my faith in human dignity consists in the belief that man is the greatest scamp on earth. Human dignity must be associated with the idea of a scamp and not with that of an obedient, disciplined, and regimented soldier. The scamp is probably the most glorious type of human being, as the soldier is the lowest type, according to this conception. It seems in my last book, My Country and My People, the net impression of readers was that I was trying to glorify the, quote, old rogue. It is my hope that the net impression of the present one will be that I am doing my best to glorify the scamp or vagabond. Um, huh, that's gonna, fantastic. Yeah, and he jumps, I'm, I'm jumping over a couple sentences. In this present age of threats to democracy and individual liberty, by the way, he wrote this in the 1930s, but this all feels pretty fresh to me. Right. In this present age of threats to democracy and individual liberty, probably only the scamp and the spirit of the scamp alone will save us from becoming lost as serially numbered units in the masses of disciplined, obedient, regimented, and uniformed coolies. The scamp will be the last and most formidable enemy of dictatorships. He will be the champion of human dignity and individual freedom and will be the last to be conquered. All modern civilization depends entirely upon him. That is truer than he would have ever imagined at the time, I think. Because if you yeah. look at the uh, the evolution of culture, let's say, in the West after the 30s, you have the rise of the beatniks, of the, the counterculture movement. Right. Uh, it seems like a lot of advances were initiated by, by scamps in the last uh, yes. 100 years. So I think that's true. Also, I, I, as you were reading there, and you kind of he's distinguishing humans from animals, and um, uh, who who are we to say that animals? We we certainly know that they do dream. I don't know if they interpret their dreams, though. <laughs> I don't think they do. <laughs> but um, I, I, I've often heard human beings described as kind of like underdeveloped animals, like we kind of permanently remain yeah. in a fetal stage with our big right. heads and our, you know, sporadic hair growth and uh, all this stuff that we, we, we're just kind of malformed animals. And our rather undifferentiated equipment. We haven't developed claws. We haven't developed remarkable eyesight like eagles. We don't have any special things. We're just a sort of like largely hairless, bulbous-headed ape. Right. But we have all this ability to adapt and become things. Exactly. Which is the fool's prerogative, to adapt yeah. and become things. In every yeah. story about a fool, the fool often will find it himself, well, usually it's a him, but it could be a her. The fool will find himself on a journey, just stumbling upon one thing after another. And slowly the story takes shape through this almost kind of a episodic process of encountering things on one's way and often the fool doesn't really re doesn't really know where he's going to begin with there's something of the human story in there like we all kind of experience our own lives that way it's one thing after another i don't really know where i'm going i don't really know what the point is we're kind of all right. fools at the deepest level and i guess historically collectively you could look at the human story as the fool's journey as well right from yeah. from ape to starman or whatever um, but again, I keep feeling like we keep drifting up into the ether, like a like a state fair balloon that a child has let go 
and is now watching climbing up to the skies. I'm sure this has happened to you as a father going to a circus or something. You buy a balloon for your kids, and of course, they let go immediately. And then they... And then they cry, and you have yes. to... Say, well, I told you to hold on to it. Yeah. Um, a lot of good that does. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's as if we keep floating up into the ether. What has any of this stuff got to do with being a fool in the normal vernacular sense that well, we mean? Like, for right. let me give you a, like a concrete instance. What do we mean? And getting back to the Doobie Brothers, what do we mean when we talk about a fool in love? We all know what that means. You know, if I want to give you a, an exalted example from literature, I might say Gustav von Aschenbach in Thomas Mann's novella Death in Venice, who is the most dignified creature imaginable, a famous writer whose novels are taught in schools everywhere, and, you know, a man of great and imponderable dignity who finds himself in the utterly undignified position of falling in love uh, with a boy he sees at a beachside resort and eventually chooses to, rather than escape a cholera epidemic, chooses to stay with the young man. Not that he's with the young man, he just wants to be able to look at him while he's playing on the beach. He never even plucks up his courage to say hello to the guy. And we would look at that and be like, that's a fool. That's a foolish, foolish man. That's a fool in love. And, you know, actually, I'm going to drop in the Patreon one of my music episodes, which is all about Benjamin Britten's opera, Death in Venice, where I go into all of this stuff in detail. But one of the things I do at the beginning of that podcast is talk about how Aschenbach, although this is fine literature, at the same time, Aschenbach is kind of a figure, almost an everyman figure, like who hasn't been in a situation where they sought certain dissolution and destruction, like where you know that going back to this terrible partner, like an on-again, off-again girlfriend or boyfriend who you've been feuding with for years, you know that they're bad for you. You know you shouldn't see them again. You know you shouldn't let them back in your life, but God damn it, you just can't stop doing it. And you keep making the same fucking mistake over and over again. Or somebody, you know, like Aschenbach, this is another figure of somebody who's living a staid, respectable existence and love breaks in from the outside. And it's almost more like a mental illness than, you know, anything that you would see in a, like a romantic comedy, right? It's like a pestilence that ruins a person's life and causes a person to overthrow their career, their family, their friends, everything. They lose everything for love. That's also a fool in love, right? Right. What has any of this stuff got to do with all the well, highfalutin stuff we've been talking about in this show? Right. Well, I, that's why I brought up the anti-structure stuff. Don't put words in my mouth, bro. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I was bringing up the anti-structure stuff. Because in a way, what, what, like if we think about Thomas Mann's death in Venice, what do we see? We see a tra almost tragicomic process by which a man meets his undoing through his own choice because he chose to stick to his passions and to follow his heart right. to the end. But in that tragicomic unraveling, we see, I think we sense the tragicomic nature of all endeavors, that we see that mm. we're all going to die in Venice in the end. His choices are mad only because they don't respond to the expectations that we have arbitrarily come up with to depict a properly lived life. Right. It's like anywhere. It's like another example from literature is uh, Prince Mishkin from Dostoevsky's The Idiot, which is a crazy book. Like of all of Dostoevsky's books, it's the, the weirdest, um, not because of what happens in it, but because of how it's structured. Also because of what happens or what doesn't happen in it. This uh, Prince Mishkin character is a basically a good soul, a good person, a person who's actually good thrown into the cesspool, the viper's nest that is St. Petersburg in the 19th century. A little bit like the film Being There, right? With um, Oh, yeah, like Chauncey... Yeah, right. Chauncey Gardner? Yeah, what's the name, of the, his name? the name of the actor again? I forget the actor. Oh, Peter, Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers in uh, Being There. Uh, Prince Mishkin and the, the idiot floats through St. Petersburg. Everyone feels this crazy attraction to him. Everyone's trying to convince him that their point of view is the correct one. And all these intrigues are unfolding around him. And he just kind of like a lotus flower just floats through the whole thing, creating all this chaos because of his, just his mere presence is enough to throw everything into upheaval. And at the end, doesn't meet a particularly happy end. Nevertheless, he somehow wins. Not only does he win, he redeems the world. 
that's the book where Dostoevsky wrote the line, beauty will save the world. This beautiful man, through his innocence, through his goodness, is able not only to resist the temptations and the follies of this world, but somehow, through his presence, redeems the follies, redeems the evils, somehow makes this world a world you'd want to exist in. And but that seems like a, a kind of emotion from, that's a holy fool, that's emotion from folly to wisdom. But it seems to me that there's also the motion from wisdom back to folly is just as important. And, yes. and something you were saying before you were talking about the idiot, just before that, something in that reminded me of a passage in Alejandro Hodorowsky's commentary on the tarot. So Hodorowsky's probably best, well, God, actually, I can't even tell exactly what he would be best known for because he's a sort of a Wagnerian polymathic pluriform creator in multimedia. So he directed a couple of very weird films, El Topo, El Topo yeah. and The Holy Mountain. Right. He was going to direct an insane and extravagant version of Frank Herbert's Dune before the gig was taken away from him. But he managed to get like Orson Welles and Salvador Dali was going to be the emperor of the universe. He had all these crazy yeah. ideas and almost none of it was made. But there is a script, like a storyboarded script that apparently has been floating out there for years as a kind of samizdat. And there's a wonderful documentary uh, called Hodorowsky's Dune, which argues that much of the sci-fi fantasy landscape since the mid-70s- In has, Hollywood, Yeah. Yeah, in Hollywood has been nourished by the subterranean stream of Hodorowsky's unmade Dune. So he's known for that as well. He's known for creating comic books or like writing stories for comics. The Incal, which he did with Mobius, which is a masterpiece. Uh, he's done all kinds of shit. And he also has written books about magic, psychomagic, um, a very good spiritual autobiography. I don't know. He's done a lot of things. One of his things is tarot. He is a lifelong devotee of the tarot, and particularly of the Marseille deck. He tells a story in his commentary on the Marseille tarot of meeting Andre Breton and showing him a, a tarot deck from a huge collection he had at the time, and Breton looking at these cards with contempt and saying, oh, these symbols are pitifully obvious. These are not true tarot decks. There's only one true tarot, and it's the Marseille. And Hodorowsky says that he threw all of his other tarot decks in the trash, and from thenceforth only accepted the Marseille tarot as the true tarot, which, whatever. Well, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, speaking of... Uh, of, of, of foolish wisdom, my daughter, when she was very young, she was five or six, she wanted a tarot deck. So I had her choose a deck and she actually chose the Marseille deck, which is oh, the least impressive. It's the beigest of them all. It's the beigest, but I think Hodorowsky slash Breton actually had a point that there is something so strange and mysterious about these images, partly because they're not trying to be strange. They yeah. just are what they are. They almost seem like natural formations, like right. rock formations or something. Correct. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, they're certainly creations of like an anonymous creativity and probably collective. They seem like emanations of a collective mind, which is probably what they are. Um, in any event, so I'm sort of getting off of my topic, um, which has never happened before on the show. Uh, at the beginning, he tells a story of how he came to know the tarot and he tells a lovely little story and I'm going to read part of it. He says, I first met the cards when I was seven years old, living in Tokopia, a small Chilean port town nestled between the glacial Pacific Ocean and the mountainous plateaus of Tarapaca, the driest region on earth where not a drop of rain has fallen in centuries. That's such a cool first sentence already, yeah. you know, like a storybook picture in your head. And he tells a story of how this is a very hot and dry part of the world and people would just close up their shops until five o'clock and then open them again. And when he was seven years old, his father decided that he had reached the age of reason and could accompany him to a pool hall. That's where all the business owners in this small town would go and they would play pool. And this is a pool hall owned by a guy named Crazy Abraham who Hodorowsky describes as a Lithuanian Jewish widower who had washed up here under mysterious circumstances. And so Hodorowsky 
talks about how the billiards games of his father and his friends didn't interest him at all. The only thing that interested him was watching Crazy Abraham playing with a tarot deck. And he writes, Crazy Abraham was obsessed with building large castles out of cards. He would leave these huge and imposing constructions, no two of which were ever alike on the bar counter, far from any drafts, until he got drunk and intentionally knocked them down, only to immediately begin building another. Jaime, who was Hodorowsky's father, would mockingly tell me to ask the loony why he did this. Smiling sadly, he would give a child the answer he did not wish to give to adults. Quote, I am imitating God, little one. The one who creates us, destroys us, and with what's left of us, he rebuilds. Wow. Wow. Ha! That's, that's fucking beautiful. It is. And it seems to me that movement from nothing to something, and as I, w- I would insist, back again, um, to build something and destroy it, and then from what's left to build again. Uh, that's what the tarot means yeah. in a certain sense. But also, I feel like that's the motion of the fool, that in our folly, we do things like, for example, Aschenbach's folly. Um, I would argue that the ending of Death in Venice is a happy ending because he got what he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and and we are the richer for it. Yes, there is a there is a uh, a kind of uh, puerile way of looking at life. I've always thought, like, whenever in my twenties, when people were breaking up and people were looking for their spouses, right? And you'd hear about two people breaking up, and oh, how horrible it is. And I never, I'm like, well, yeah. They broke up or that person uh, was mountain climbing and fell to their death. No one should ever mountain climb. <laughs> you know, that, that type of thinking, <laughs> like, like because yeah. bad things happen, nothing should. Or like in Toronto, when I was living there in like 2001, uh, some kid had gotten hurt in a play structure. So overnight, the city just dismantled all the play structures in town so that yeah. this would never happen again. That kind of There's attitude. That's some Canadian shit right there. But, that's, but it's typical of a kind of like, we want to make sure this never happens again. It will always happen again. Everything right. horrible you can imagine will happen again and again and again. If you're going to live, it needs to be in spite of that, not against it. You can't yeah. fight that. Anti-structure is part of the structure. Chaos is part of the equation. The fool is part of it. The good and the bad, you know? Maybe the fool is the one who's able to see this and say Yes. Right. Yeah. Or maybe is not, um, it seems to me, maybe I wouldn't quite agree with the is able to see this and say yes, because that assumes a certain degree of self-reflexivity, of reflecting upon your own behavior. But it seems to me that the Parsifalian fool is precisely somebody who succeeds where all the other knights of Amfortas's order fail because he has no self-reflection at all. He doesn't even know his own name. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>